Are you enjoying listening to the Memory Hole podcast? If so, I'm taking this moment to ask for your support. If you are enjoying the show, the best thing you can do to support it would be to tell your friends. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or iHeartRadio. Rating the show on these platforms really helps. Follow the show on Instagram, and please visit the show website at memoryholepodcast.com. You can subscribe to my substack, jennamartin.substack.com, for a mix of show updates and the rest of my writing. For updates on my novel, a literary thriller about two women grappling with the long shadow of the recovered memory movement, please visit jennamartinauthor.com and subscribe. Episode 5 of the Memory Hole Podcast, Forget-Me-Not, How We Don't Remember. The next stage is memory, which is like a great field or a spacious palace, a storehouse for containing images of all kinds, which are conveyed to it by the senses. In it are stored away all the thoughts by which we enlarge upon or diminish or modify in any way the perceptions at which we arrive through the senses and it also contains anything else that has been entrusted to it for safekeeping, until such time as these things are swallowed up and buried in forgetfulness. No one could pretend that the memory does not belong to the mind. We might say that the memory is a sort of stomach for the mind, and that joy or sadness are like sweet or bitter food. When this food is committed to the memory, it is as though it had passed into the stomach where it can remain but also loses its taste. Of course, it is absurd to suppose that the memory is like the stomach, but there is some similarity nonetheless. The passage I just read comes from Book 10 of St. Augustine's Confessions. Confessions is considered the first modern autobiography, and even though it was written between AD 397 and 400, it describes a mind just like ours. Without the language of psychology or science, he observes and makes note of mental functions we experience today. The lack of modern lingo makes his observations that much more profound. In this passage, he compares memory to being the stomach of the mind. Joy or sadness, like sweet and bitter foods, pass into the stomach where they lose their taste. We remember the taste, but it doesn't have the same digestive intensity. It's kind of whimsical to consider the memory like the stomach of the mind. But that metaphor is 2,000 years old. Our minds and memories are so complicated that we do still rely on metaphor to understand them. We construct models, usually comparing the mind to the most modern technology. My parents might have said memory is like a Rolodex or a filing cabinet, while I understand it as a computer or a linked network. Modern metaphors for the mind are evolving, and we each might have our own personal metaphors. Freud and his colleagues used metaphors too. The very word repression is an antique metaphor based on a hydraulic model of the brain. Hydraulics, a system that transmits force through fluids, was the latest technology over a hundred years ago. In the hydraulic model of the brain, our emotions and psychic energies are forces under pressure. 
feelings and wishes are hidden underwater before they are discharged or surfaced. If they are not expressed, they find release in other outlets. So repression is a metaphor, not a provable mental model. You cannot prove there's no such thing as repression. You can't prove a negative. Uh, what you can do is to consult serious academic psychological researchers who have followed the basic principle of science, which is that hypotheses have to be compared with one another for their adequacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So researchers who have not simply accepted repression because it's out there in the culture, but who have tried to set up procedures, test whether or not it's genuine, have come up with a virtually unanimous verdict that so far, no one has come up with a single corroborated case of Freudian repression. Now, Freud started um, promulgating this idea in the 1890s. It's been quite a while. And if the phenomenon were real, we would certainly have quite a number of well-corroborated cases by now. But the fact is that we don't. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. Follow Professor Cruz's advice and consult serious academic psychological researchers. I'm Henry Rotkar. I'm a professor of uh, legal psychology, um, and I work at the Faculty of Psychology and Neuroscience at Maastricht University. But I also work as a professor at the Faculty of Law and Criminology at KU Leuven. Um, so I work at two different faculties, two different universities, two different countries with actually the aim to, to bridge the gap between psychology and law and specifically in, in, in fields such as memory, traumatic memory, expert witness work, etc. Many of the resources for recovering memories, including the courage to heal, suggest that forgetting one's childhood is ominous. I don't have many memories of my childhood is translated through a memory-hunting lens as a sign of hidden trauma. But childhood amnesia is a normal part of development, related to language and to necessary pruning of our brain. I started off my conversation with Dr. Akgar, talking about our earliest memories. If you talk about childhood amnesia, um, there's a little bit of debate on the exact time period for which events you're still able to recover or uh, retrieve when you're, for example, an adult. But let's say that time period is somewhere between two and three years old. So, but a very important thing is here. So the, the, the reason for why, let's say, adults are unable to retrieve memories that happened before that life period can be very simply said um, because our brain, of course, and our memory, uh, brain areas, they undergo a lot of development the first two, three years. And one of the very important, of course, developments is our development of speech, language, etc. So what we experience when we are one is a little bit differently stored, not in, in a language form than we are than when we, for example, are three or four, in which we are able to speak, etc. So these are important brain structures that can help in the consolidation of a memory. Mm -hmm. So if you don't, if you're unable to do that, it will become more and more difficult, of course, to retrieve these these memories. But there's one very a memory. Um, of course, there's a limit. I mean, if, if you are six months 
and you experience something, your brain is not developed in such a way that you can retrieve that autobiographical memory. But because the, the development of our autobiographical memory, because that's what you ask people to retrieve an autobiographical memory, that really starts to develop in the really around uh, years two, three, four, in which in which children receive this sense of self that when they, for example, look in the mirror, they know I'm that person in the mirror. Mm, so mm-hmm. that, that, that feeling of their own identity, that's essential for retrieving an autobiographical memory, a memory of yourself. Uh, and that starts to develop around that period of childhood and amnesia, that, that, that little bit flexible or fixed period. Um, and that's an essential part of, of, uh, of why people are unable to remember events when they, for example, were six months old, uh, because that sense and development of self, also language, and I said that that's all not developed yet. Uh, so you're asking people to do something of which our brain just cannot do. Um, and yeah, well, you, you you might know as well, of course, that there are these mm-hmm. cases in which, in which people do say that they remember being abused when they were maybe eight eight months old. And they have very vivid memories of how the, yeah. the perpetrator abused them, which is according to how our memory works, highly, highly unlikely. And I would say actually impossible. So what can we make of the central idea of the entire recovered memory movement? Do our minds repress traumatic events out of a self-protective mechanism? Can childhood memories of traumatic events, sometimes horrible events, be repressed and then recovered years later? Um, let me maybe first start with the, the I think the main problem with the repressed memory mm-hmm. is um, it, it's not a scientifically valid concept for okay. the simple reason is that as you might know uh, that theories concepts in science should be able to be falsified should be able to be tested I think and if you are unable to test it falsify it it doesn't really belong to the realm of a scientific concept I think that's the problem with repressed memory. We cannot test it because it's inaccessible according to definition. It's unconsciously stored. You're not aware of it. So you can never falsify it. The only way to falsify it or test it is when the memory comes back. It is recovered. But then it's not a repressed memory anymore. So uh, that's, the I think, the main big issue with repressed memory. It is it, it, if we If we take these issues of falsification and uh, testing concepts seriously, and I think we as scientists do, uh, repressed memory does not even belong in, 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 that, uh, in that sense to, to, uh, to the issue of falsification. So if you then talk with people and say about how, do, how, do, how will trauma affect our memory, we could say, well, um, we can test this in various ways. One way is to see is to examine people of which we know they really underwent traumatic events. There is ground truth. There's objective evidence that they underwent the traumatic events. So, if repressed memory would uh, really exist, there would be a lot of people uh, in that sample that would have no recollection of that trauma whatsoever, and it cannot be explained by, for example, organic failures or whatever. So an example would be uh, people who um, uh, are survivors of concentration camps. So, uh, I mean, we can all agree uh, that these are traumatic events. They have endured very horrible things, sometimes even not only physical abuse, sometimes it's sexual abuse, but also many other horrifying things. Well, just look at in the data that we have, and we and, and knowing that these are real survivors, none of them have 
said that they have repressed memories. Surely some of them forgotten stuff about them about these events, which is normal because a traumatic memory details will be forgotten as well. Some of these survivors are so old uh, that they mm. maybe have much difficulty in recalling stuff, which doesn't mean a repressed memory it could just be because they uh, are so old, they have maybe problems with their brain, dementia, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you just look at the overall picture, they these people remember it. Uh, and uh, actually, if you talk to them, some of them even would say, well, I wish something would exist like a repressed memory because I'm haunted by my memories, right? These right. flashbacks, these intrusive memories that pop up. So I think that that already speaks against the idea that traumatic memories would be unconsciously blocked or stored. Um, so that's the first thing. We see in these examples, not only of survivors of consecration camps, but there's also research of um, uh, victims of uh, sexual abuse, of which there is good documentation that they were abused or, or experienced something highly negative, that they are still able to remember this 20 years later. Again, not everything. And you will even forget some of these de these details but this can be explained by, again, normal forgetting. And also, if you then look from a more neuroscientific point of view, um, events that are um, experienced as highly emotionally negative, they, they will uh, trigger all kinds of um, 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 hormones, etc., in your brain that actually will activate um, parts in your brain which facilitate memory. They will right. not, not hamper memory, but facilitate memory. Uh, we know from a lot of research that emotional events are better remembered than, let's say, uh, um, um, neutral type of events. Um, and this also speaks against the, the, the notion that traumatic memories can be unconsciously blocked. So that, that's the, I think that's one way to tell people, well, uh, you might talk about repressed memory, but if we use a literal definition, it's highly unlikely that a memory is repressed. Okay, so if repression isn't a real mechanism, how then does something just pop into our minds? We do, sometimes suddenly, just remember things from our childhoods and our past. How do memory scientists account for those experiences? Confused with very plausible explanations about how memory works, like ordinary forgetting, or that people just haven't thought about a memory for a long time. And then suddenly they, 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 that memory pops up, which is how memory works. We, we, we get a cue. For example, we have been mistreated by someone, maybe a pastor uh, in, a, in, in a city. We move to another city. We, we don't think about that memory anymore. We go back to the city where we were born. We see that person again, and that memory pops up. It, it's, it's very normal that because luckily we have many memories, but it's not the case that all of these memories pop up the entire time. I mean, that, 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 would, that would be very difficult for us as a human being to be bombarded with all of our memories the entire mm -hmm. no we have the memories and we don't think about many of them sometimes even traumatic memories so um so it might feel for people right? so they have the subjective feeling that the memory was gone but a subjective feeling is not the same as the, the the objective reality that the memory was there but people didn't think about it 
There's another explanation for how people remember childhood sexual abuse, particularly in the early years of their recovered memory movement. And this was a change in how abuse was perceived. Think back to episode two, when we learned how childhood sexual abuse was so commonplace and shushed over. In adulthood, looking back, many of these experiences were reframed and newly understood as abusive. The thing that you, of course, see uh, as well is a, a group of, of, of people who were indeed mistreated, were perhaps even abused, but they didn't experience it as abuse at that time. So yes. two, two, two days ago, uh, we had a meeting with uh, a center for sexual violence, and we are giving some trainings uh, to them about how you should interview the victims of abuse. And they said also to me, they said, we sometimes have children, but also adults who experienced something when they were young, but they didn't experience it at that time as negative. So they were touched in appropriate ways, but they didn't realize at that time that this was unheard of, that you shouldn't do this. And only maybe after many years, they found out that what the perpetrator did to them is inappropriate. They they then get a, a new emotional um, um, uh, um, charge to that memory, which feels as a new memory, but it's the same memory. It, it just gets a new emotional charge towards it, which feels as if the memory was never there, but it was always there but you reinterpret it, you reappraise the memory, and it feels perhaps as a, a memory which was repressed, which was not repressed. Um, it, it, it is a memory that received a new emotion, a new interpretation, uh, and that can feel as surprising. But again, it's not the same as the literal definition of a repressed memory. Since I've started this project about the recovered memory movement, I've noticed just how often people misuse the word repression in conversation and in popular culture. As an example, here's a little clip from The Simpsons. Time to repress another memory. Bart rolls over in bed, squeezing the pillow over his head to block out his parents' activities, planning to pre-repress any memory. I'm pretty sure after listening to this podcast, you too will start noticing the word repression everywhere in the conversation about memory. It's become like what depression is to sadness, repression now is to forgetting. Even mental health professionals use it in a somewhat casual way. But Dr. Akar has a more systematic understanding. Yeah, so I think, I think it's important that uh, well, you talk about repression, which I think is the, let's say, the mechanism, the process, which will lead to a repressed memory, repressed memory and the outcome, right, I would right. say. But repression is, would say, the, the mechanism of, of leading to repressed memory. Well, and it, if we look at the data that we now have, right? So if you look at data in which people were asked whether they believe in repressed memory or in repression, you see many of these data that people highly believe in it. You still see that, but in many of these survey studies, people have not been specifically asked, what do you mean with repression, right? Mm. So and, and that's what we're, we're, that, what we've been doing and also other colleagues have been doing now. So we're, we're asking some extra questions about, so what do you really mean with repression? And you, you still see that a majority of them, they really think that a repressed memory means that there is a traumatic memory somewhere being unconsciously blocked for many years, inaccessible, can only be recovered uh, by therapy, etc. So that's really the, the definition that people, oh, many many psychiatrists, psychologists, 
also still believe, which is would also be really the literal definition of a repressed memory. So you do see that quite some people of the general public, they really think that that's a repressed memory. Well, I think that that's, of course, uh, problematic because then you see they really think that this is how memory works. However, what we also see in some of our recent work that some people seem to confuse a repressed memory indeed with ordinary forgetting. They indeed, like you said, they use it very lightly. They say, well, I might have repressed this memory and they actually just mean I might have forgotten that memory or I might have forgotten these details. So this is so that there are some subgroups, I would say, of people who really believe that um, uh, traumatic memories are very special memories. They are different than normal memories. And that's why they will be re repressed in an unconscious form. Um, and that there are a lot of people who believe this. Um, but certainly there are there is a cohort, there's a subgroup of people who just, like you say, they use it in daily language. And they, they don't even uh, think about the more, these, this extreme idea of, forgetting they just use it because it's a popular term is being used a lot and they just refer to it perhaps as as for normal forgetting ordinary forgetting dr akar mentioned that people believe traumatic memories are different from all other memories i asked him more about this because the popular understanding around trauma and traumatic memories being special is really pervasive as a legal psychologist does he think that traumatic memories are so-called special memories? Of course, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about how uh, traumatic events are remembered. Um, so I think that that's certainly a major issue in many cases that indeed the, the idea of many that traumatic memories can be can be blocked for many times or repressed for many times and then um, accurately recovered. I think that's a, a, a big issue or that even traumatic memories can be stored in, in the body. Uh, uh, so the, the body keeps the score idea, which is very popular. There's also a misconception that I see quite often also in the, in, in the legal field. The typical response if you experience a traumatic event um, is that you will remember. If, if you experience it as traumatic, you will mm -hmm. store it. Huh? So it's mm -hmm. important if you experience traumatic, uh, you will you will um, you will consolidate that memory. You will be able to retrieve that memory. Uh, I, I mean, you have the the conditions to retrieve that memory. Uh, it will also be really likely to be remembered. But people might decide not to report a traumatic memory. The um, conscious reason, a, a strategy, not to report because. Uh, certainly in, in, in experience of trauma, they might feel ashamed. They might uh, be threatened. They uh, they don't want to think about something that is traumatic. These are all strategies that people use to not talk about the memory or only parts of the memory. So in general, the response will be if it is experienced traumatic and that people will be highly likely to, to remember and retrieve it, but perhaps decide not to do it. Uh, I think that's a very important uh, response to it. I think another very important response is that, um, yes, some people will maybe because of the trauma develop PTSD symptoms, even develop PTSD. But very important, maybe the, the a big portion, maybe even the majority will be resilient and will be able to cope with it. So they will be able to retrieve the memory, but will not have all of the huge PTSD-like symptom, symptomatology and maybe PTSD. And that's also very important. We are, are luckily, human beings are quite 
uh, able to cope with trauma as well. Before I started researching this era, if I ever thought about memory, it was from the perspective of how to remember more and how to remember for longer. I have tried a lot of tricks to make things memorable because I enjoy learning. But the memory wars were not about memorization or how we learn. The memory wars were about autobiographical memories and that immediately makes the issues deeply personal. Everyone is intensely invested in remembering their own childhoods the way that they want to, the way that they remember them. We just know somehow that our childhood memories are real because, well, they feel real. We're each like our own St. Augustine or memory scientist, making our own explanations and metaphors for how we remember our worlds. I wanted to better understand how scientists describe our autobiographical memories. So I spoke with a neuroscience-focused psychologist, Dr. Sophie Scott. So my name's Sophie Scott, and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London. So the current understanding of memory, and this will change, I'm sure, it's already changed a lot. Psychology is a relatively new science, and there was a scientist called Ebbinghaus who um, was the first person to really study human memory. And his conception of memory was of something where you had a, you know, a, a space that could be filled. If you read Sherlock Holmes, he goes to his memory palace and it's a room with things in it. He used to put things in that room. Mm -hmm. And that's not how we think of memory now. Memory now is seen as something that's much more active. It's a process. And when you learn anything what actually happens is that you aren't taking that and filing it away. What you do is you integrate it with what you already know. Um, and one of the things about the fact that you integrate memories and you fit it in with what you already know, you do that with memories about yourself as well. Now, interestingly, those can still all be totally wrong because memory has this property of you're fitting it in, you're integrating it with other things. That's a process where distortions can creep in. So what you know about how the world works can start to affect how those memories work. But also the, the sort of the retelling and the discussions around memory, so retelling those memories, recalling those memories, can also affect how, this, how the memories exist. When we retell our memories, like the readers of The Courage to Heal were encouraged to do, it affects how the memories themselves exist in our minds. The storytelling that The Courage to Heal promoted was about sharing and shaping memories, all done in the name of healing. But maybe this kind of rehearsal just amplified vague memories or transformed the memories altogether. It's not I mean, it's something that people have to be very careful with when they are working as counsellors and therapists because, because how you ask the question can affect how people remember things. So a study done where psychologists asked people about, can you tell us about that time that you were lost in the mall? And they'd, they'd actually gone to the trouble of finding people's parents and determining whether or not they ever had been lost in a mall. Not unusual. They also knew who definitely hadn't been. 
But when asked the question, oh, that time that you were lost in the mall, a significant proportion of the people who had never been lost in a mall remembered being lost in a mall because it's a thing that happens to children and you, we have a story around it. You know, maybe a policeman finds you, you're crying, you look at your mum. It's not, you know, so people remembered something that hadn't happened to them because of how they'd been asked the question. And it wasn't, it's not lying because they were asked the question in a way that implied it had happened to them. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, so it's it's a it's an interaction I mean, any conversation is an interaction, but when you're asked these sorts of direct questions, it really can, the, the way that these things are phrased can have an enormous impact on exactly how people, you know, get, remember or recall or tell something that fits with that story. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a lie because it's not a lie. People think that because they're being confronted with something that suggests it did happen to them, they tell a story that fits with it. Boy, when Dr. Scott said. They were asked the question in a way that implied it had happened to them. All I could think of were those checklists and the courage to heal. This podcast isn't going to provide a definitive look at memory science, but very interesting memory experiments have been done, and none of them point to our memories being particularly reliable or reproducible. People did a really interesting study of what are called flashbulb memories, and flashbulb memories are, me- are, are memories for sort of shocking events where everybody's experiencing it all at once. So, you know, the Twin Towers, um, JFK being shot, what the thing, uh, the space shuttle. Oh, I, right, um, right. Where were you on? Where were you? What, what where were you, you doing? Were. Okay. Um, some psychologists moved really, really swiftly after 9 11 to go and ask people about, because they studied students. And the students are all kind of from a one community. So they asked, you know, they got lots of accounts from students about where they were when they heard the news. And then a year later, they asked the same people. And a significant proportion of those people had changed their memory from being, oh, I heard, I saw it, someone said it in the street or I heard it on the radio to, I was in the, I was in the halls of residence at the, at the university and we were watching it on television. And when they were given information about, well, actually, this is what you told us a year ago, where you were, you were and what they'd done was they'd kind of, students often are watching things on television, and they often yeah. are all in one place together. This is, that's a statistically commonplace. And that's where the sort of, whether the memory had gone, that the information had come to them there. When, when presented with example of them actually saying something completely different, they had no sense of familiarity or recognition at all. And this would be true for any of us when confronted with one of these things. You just, I, I, I did not know that. And I think that's the stories being retold. They probably heard many more stories of people talking about watching it with other people. And that sort of became their narrative. It's, it's common and it's sort of shocking and it's happening to all of us all the time. We just aren't often confronted with it. My main takeaway from talking to Professor Scott and Akar is that memory is unreliable. My childhood memories that I've told and rehearsed over the years are telling a story that I've selected for myself, how I want to be presented and seen. Maybe awareness of that is liberating? Our memory might be less about who we are than a tool with which we build ourselves. You can't just go back to your 15-year-old brain. Your brain isn't going to do that because you and your brain are an accumulation of all those different selves and you and yourself and your memory like your brain it's all a work in progress it's all still changing so it's not it's not a 
it's not a bug it's a feature the fact that memory is a incomplete description of everything that's ever happened to you it's patchy and it's very partisan and it's at any one point in time it's it's telling the stories that you kind of wanted to tell another really elaborate metaphor for our brains encompassing how we think feel and remember was the animated movie inside out which did get a lot about memory wrong for example the protagonist riley's memories were stored as discrete units as globes in the movie and that's not true and the idea of the memory dump is not entirely accurate but i still like that image the memory dump that's how i imagine childhood amnesia a dusty dark pit somewhere below our emotional headquarters and the islands of personality as these areas in the brain were called in the movie the memory dump is a chasm where our earliest memories go and then over time completely disappear but I titled this podcast The Memory Hole and not The Memory Dump because I'm more interested in exploring how we, plural, society and our culture, remember and talk about remembering. The Memory Hole, as a metaphor, comes from George Orwell's 1984. The main character, Winston, is a censor in the Ministry of Information and as part of his job, he takes inconvenient facts and discards them into a little hole on his desk vanishing them, presumably forever. That's why the name Memory Hole made sense to me. Not because anything from this era is censored, but because we have sort of forgotten about the level of crazy and chaotic that happened back in the early 90s. I think it's because it's inconvenient to look back and read about inaccurate accusations based on manipulated memories and to realize just how so many people believe them. Another, more uncomfortable reason is because a lot of these things are still with us today. This era has been tagged by some as the satanic panic, and I think that's because it's easier to deny those sorts of outrageous claims of ritual abuse. But what about the foundation of incorrect science and belief about memories that the claims of ritual abuse sprung from? It's uncomfortable and difficult to examine those, because many people still believe those stories to be true. This episode has been a little different than the first four. I wanted to take the time to really dig into these questions and highlight just how wrong many of our ideas about memory really are, and how what we presume to be true is misinformed. Some of that conventional wisdom about memory is still shaped by the recovered memory movement. The memory wars never really went away. Some would argue that it's a story that's been going on in the background the whole time. For episode six, we'll be back picking up that story. Join me, won't you, in the memory hole. <laughs>